welcome to the podcast for St. Andrew's Community United Methodist Church, a loving, caring, overcoming community of faith where our mission is making disciples of Jesus Christ. So you get down on one knee, you hold up a ring, you give a short speech, and then you ask her to marry you. That seems to be the standard liturgy, if you will, for how it is you propose marriage to someone. I know this because I looked it up. Normally, that would be a man card violation, looking about creative marriage proposals, but there are two exceptions to that that let you keep your man card. Exception number one, you are a man about to propose marriage and you have zero creativity, so you go online to get a little help. Or number two, you're a pastor doing research. Those are the two exceptions to prevent the man card violation. So I will take exception number two, and yes, I did Google in creative marriage proposals because I just wondered what kind of things people did to be creative about engagement. Here's some of what I read, just in case someone asks you, so you will be well informed and it's no card violation. You can hire a private chef to come to your house and prepare a beautiful meal with candlelight, or you can go on a picnic. You can take a vespiture. I don't even know what that is. You can have a trivia night, and as part of the trivia, you ask the question, will you marry me? Or you can put together a personal puzzle that when it's completed, it says, will you marry me? Or you can take a walk out in nature. You walk through the mountains. You walk along the beach. You walk through the woods, or you walk alongside a river. That last one sounds risky to me because of one story that I did read. A man took his girlfriend a walk along the river. When they got to a specific, you know, place, he was going to get down on one knee, pull out a ring, give a short speech, and ask her if she would marry him. And so they get to this place, and they're looking at the vista, and they're listening to the river, and that's when he gets down on one knee, and he pulls a box out of his pocket, and immediately... She begins to tear up, and he drops the box in the river. And she begins to cry, and she begins to say, we need to go get it. And that's when he reaches in his pocket and pulls out another box that actually has the ring in it and asks if she will marry him. Methinks that after she said yes, she was tempted to push him into said river. (laughs) You got to be creative these days if you're going to get engaged. Engagement is a relationship status. Engagement is a pledge between two people who mutually agree to enter into a relationship and a commitment with one another. And engagement is the newest metric for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and how you would measure the health of a church. In this series, Creating Engagement, we looked last week at how one part of that metric is that people who are engaged in the mission and vision of a church are people who serve. 
that all of us have gifts for ministry and we do well to live in our identity as ministers so that we serve in the church, but we also serve in the community, that we are light in the midst of the darkness around us, that we are salt that brings flavor to the world. Today, obviously, we're looking at people who give. Oh, yes, brothers and sisters, this one is about finances. This one is about money and how it is the use of our money is part of the way we understand the pledge that we make to Christ to be his disciple. It strengthens a relationship. Let me use myself as an example. My wife Robin and I met. She was a freshman. I was a senior in college, and that's when we started to date. We actually dated for over four years, not because we were just slow to pull the trigger on an engagement, but because we were determined to get through college before we made any decisions like that. And for most of that time, she was in Oklahoma City, and I was in Tulsa. So in order for us to be able to have a long-distance relationship, uh, we had to do something that for most younger generations sounds really Jurassic, perhaps even prehistoric. For us to communicate, there were two things that we did. Number one, we wrote letters to each other. No email, no texting. We actually wrote letters. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't get any better than that. You go to the mailbox, and there's a letter from someone you love. There is nothing better than that, as long as it's addressed Dear D.A. and not Dear John. <laughs> the other thing we did was we talked a lot on the phone. Now, I suspect most of y'all remember this time, and that is there used to be different times in the day when the phone rates were different. And if you wanted the cheapest phone rate, then you had to call after 11 o'clock at night. 20% of my budget went to paying my phone bill. Now, I have joked for years that a marriage proposal is not merely something you do because you are in love. A marriage proposal is something you do to protect the financial investment that you have made into this other person. When you consider 20% of my budget was phone bill, and then I had gas and toll fees driving back to Oklahoma City, and you had to pay for a date, and you had, you know, birthdays, Christmas, Valentine's Day, and just random because I love you gifts. I mean, it is a financial investment. Buying a ring is just to protect what you have been paying in for years. <laughs> Well, honestly, no. <laughs> that wasn't a way of protecting my investment. My investment was into the commitment that I made in the relationship. What we do with our money, how we handle our finances, is an indicator of how invested we are in a relationship. And the money you give suggests that you're deeply committed to this thing. And Jesus, just a few days before he's crucified, sees something and uses it as a teachable moment, a very small thing, but perhaps something that all of us 
know about, a story most of us have probably heard. I'm going to read it as we find it in the Gospel of Luke, if you would give your attention to this reading from God's Word. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. This poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. When it comes to how much money we give to God, we do well to remember something that I have always believed and always preached. And that is when it comes to our money, what we give is not a matter of finances. It is a matter of faith. How deeply committed are we in this relationship with Christ? The money that we give to God is a matter of faith that witnesses to the trust that we have that God is going to provide what we need. That's what we learn when we dig deeply into this widow's story. If you will stay with me while I try to unpackage some of this and help us understand it if we've never understood it before. Okay, so this woman is known as, quote, a poor widow. Now, the fact that she is a widow suggests that once upon a time she was married, but her husband has died. Now, her husband obviously was not a man of financial means because if he were, he would have left her money on which she could live. But he doesn't seem to have done that, therefore she is poor. Now, it's obvious also that her husband did not have a brother. Because in this cultural context, when he died, it would have been his brother's obligation to take this widow as his wife to provide for her. But we get no indication that she has any family support whatsoever. There is no husband. There are no children. There is no brother there is no family to support her in how she is then supposed to exist and get by and the fact that she was so poor suggests that she did not really have any skills that she could turn in to generating income for herself and so often widows in that culture if they did not have someone to provide for them were left typically with two options option number one they would turn to begging for money option number two they would turn to prostitution that was how they would get by and this woman this woman does not seem to do either one of those she's poor she is destitute of money she is destitute of opportunity she is destitute of honor and yet when Jesus sees what she gives she is the one who is praised 
She is the one who becomes the role model for how we ought to give. Now, again, the fact that she was giving something despite the fact she didn't have anything lets us know why we read particularly in the Old Testament that part of our responsibility as Christians living in community is to care for orphans and widows. One of the prophets said this is what pure religion is, is to care for orphans and widows. She didn't give as a means of finances. She gave as an expression of her faith that she trusted God would provide for her needs in life. When Robin and I went to Russia about 30 years ago, we heard stories of widows in Russia who would forego a week's income that they would spend on food simply so they could buy one brick to help rebuild a church that had been destroyed in communism. Oh, beloved, Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So it is that as we look at this story, we see that she gave as a matter of faith. But Jesus also affirms percentage giving, not merely the amount of the gift. So it was that as he watched in the temple, he watched as the rich people came, and this translation said, they gave out of their surplus. I like the way Pastor Barry Johnson shares about it. He said their surplus equals leftovers. That after they had taken care of all their creature comforts, after they had bought all their clothes, all their food, provided everything they wanted to make their life comfortable, they still had money left over, and so they gave that leftover money to God. They did not give to God first. They gave to God as an afterthought. Now, I shared with you that when I was in seminary, 20% of my income was budgeted for my telephone bill. 40% of my budget was for paying the rent. 30% of my budget was for gas, insurance, taxes, food. (laughs) But that last 10% was actually the first 10%. I had begun to practice tithing when I was a college student, and I carried it through the years as a poor, broke, ramen noodle-eating seminary student because it expressed my love for God. It expressed what I wanted to give to God. I didn't give to God so he would bless me. I was giving to God to try to bless God for all his faithfulness to me. Scripturally, we understand what this widow did is what we should do. She gave it all. But the standard the Bible lifts up is that we give 10%, a tithe. Friends, be clear. A tithe is not 7.5%. A tithe is not 3% or 2%, which is what the average Methodist actually gives. A tithe is 10%. And our hope is that we can express through our giving that God's going to take care of everything we need if we return to him the tithe that God asked for. 
that God's going to take care of us. We're not going to go hungry. We're not going to go naked. We're, we're not going to go around without. We just may not have as much as others who give God what's left over. We give faithfully to God. And that's why I like that, that Jesus looks at this woman's gift. And he says, she's given more than anybody because it's percentage giving. We always like to challenge people, if you look at your finances, because again, even though it's a matter of faith, a lot of us look at it as a matter of finances, that sometimes we'll say, I just can't do this. Now, I'm not here to, to judge anybody on that, but I would suggest that we always try to grow in our faith. Is giving is a matter of faith, and my faith is not to the place where I tithe. What can I do to take a step of faith and get closer to that? Engagement is a way that we define the relationship. We give to God as a matter of faith. It is percentage giving, and let's be clear, engagement is a matter of the heart. Again, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. You don't give to God because it's a law. You give to God because it's a matter of expressing our faith and our love and our gratitude for all God does and blesses us with. Everybody still with me? Okay, just making sure. So how many of you get these kind of I call them magazines. They're not really big enough to be magazines. Maybe we should just call it a printed brochure or something like that. You get them from the college you went to or some charity you support, and at least once a year, the ones I get, they come to you, and at the end of this published material is a list of donors. Do you all get those too? And if you don't get them, here's kind of what they look like. And I'm just going to give us some random ways of thinking about this. But they will always give a list of donors. And the very top, and it always starts with the biggest givers and works its way down to people like me. It, it always starts with the biggest you know, givers. And it'll say, uh, this is the gold medal standard of giving right here. These are the people that, you know, they gave $50,000 or more to support what we're doing. This making sense to y'all? And then you get the, the silver medal, you know, because that's what you get for second place. You get the silver medal, and it's from people that give from $25,000 to $49,999.99. And then you have the bronze level, and maybe that's people that give 10000 and above. And, and then this is the one I'm really making up. You get the wood level. It's not even a medal. And it's for people to give 5000 And anyone under 5000 they don't get a level. They're just called a donor. They can give $25. They could give $500. They just didn't meet the wood level. You know what I'm saying? Okay, now y'all ready for something outrageous? What if we did that in the church? Now, trust me, we ain't never going to do this in the church. But just for the sake of thoughtfulness, what would you do if we did that in the church? What would you do if in January, when we sent out your year-end giving statements, that is, if I could convince Hazel, yes, we really are going to send this out, uh, because she would be saying, D.A., this is a really bad idea. But again, we're never going to do this. But what if you got your yearly report and at the end it said, oh, here are the families that gave 20000 or more to the church. 
And here are the families that gave 15000 or more and just went on down until you got to, and here are people who gave. Wow. How would that make you feel? I don't know the answer to that. I'm just asking the question. But since it's not a matter of the size of the gift that is important, how would you feel if we had evidence and said, here are the people that gave 10%. Here are the people that gave 7% and went on down. How would you feel about that? Again, that's an outrageous thing to think about. And perhaps even just the fact I brought it up, and I want to be very clear, we will never do this. But how does it make you feel? Maybe for some people, it hurts. You know, if my... uh, leg hurts I might go to my doctor and say my leg hurts what'd you do I don't know I just woke up one morning and it hurts do I have a witness this morning (laughs) it just happens the older you get and he'd say well okay well let me examine your leg and he's going to poke and he's going to prod and he's going to push and he's going to twist and he may say does this hurt no does this hurt no does this hurt That hurts. Now, at that point, one of two things has happened. One, either my doctor has been unnecessarily rough in how he's handling my leg, or number two, he's touched the place where it really hurts. When it comes to preaching on finances, I understand sometimes it is a place that really hurts. And having said that, let me share this. When I read the scripture, when I read what Jesus is doing, I remember the context of this. This is just a few days before Jesus is going to die. So he's already had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we celebrate, (coughs) excuse me, on Palm Sunday. He's gone into the temple the next day and he has chased out the money changers and he's turned over their tables the religious leaders have come to Jesus and they've tried to trick him because they're already wanting to kill him and they try to trick him and they show him a coin and say is it right for us to pay taxes or not and of course they don't trick Jesus at all and they try to trick him with the question about the resurrection and they're growing increasingly frustrated because there's nothing they can do to trick Jesus and publicly shame him so that people will not revolt when they have Jesus killed And Jesus knows what they're doing. So the question is, where is Jesus? Well, he's not hiding. He didn't go to somebody's house and say, hey, let's just hang out. No, Jesus is in the temple. He is in the place where everybody is coming because the Passover is coming. He is very public. He is out there. They don't have to look for him. They know where Jesus is. And what is Jesus doing? He is standing with the offering box in view, and he's watching what people give. Jesus is watching our giving. Let's pray.